Us. As you can see by the handout, we are about ready to dive into some topics that are controversial, to say the least, in many circles. I actually wrote up this intro for you um, as I was trying to think how to, how to address the topic, especially the topic of divorce. So I wrote here, when it comes to difficult topics, this one can only be described as a landmine. <laughs> Let me put it this way. If I were to pull the pin on a hand grenade, release the clip, and forget to throw it, that's my fault, because I'm an idiot. But in this room, there are a bunch of people who may be described as potential buried landmines because each of you have situations in your past or present of which I am unaware. Therefore, it's quite possible that I might trip a landmine and you may become uncomfortable, frustrated, or even angry. Therefore, I pre-apologize. What I would ask is that you forget everything you have ever heard about these matters, forget your prejudices and your preconceived notions, and let's explore what the text says. Then allow the Word of God to speak directly to your heart. It may be we end up in different places, but at least the landmines of emotional responses have been temporarily diffused. Teaching the passage while still jet lag is not a formula that is calculated for success. (laughs) But our goal here is not to settle millennia of debate or to set church polity, but to take a gander at the text and the context and see if it can inform our future reading of scripture. That's my introduction to this topic, because seriously, studying this material and the rancorous entrenchment and the attempt to take this passage and literally in one sermon or one short brief writing set an entire church's doctrine and then one place says it one way another place says it another and another place sets it another when I started looking at the uh, the issue of divorce, especially within the church confines, you realize that it's the one issue of ethics, if you want to call it that, that the church has been trying desperately to get its hands around, especially in the last couple generations. If you think about it, no-fault divorce was first... um, legislated by California in 1969. 2010 was the last state to vote it in, and that was New York. The legislation of 1969 was actually signed into law in California by Governor Reagan, who was himself divorced and remarried. And since that time, you have the church suddenly going, oh, it's so easy for people to get divorced. But wait, the scripture says this. And then you have passages like in Malachi where it says God hates divorce, unless you're reading the ESV. So if you go in Malachi 2.16, you'll not find that phrase in the ESV. They've, um, it's not that they've changed it. They have actually looked at the Hebrew and said, you know, it may not actually say it that way. that we have traditionally looked at. I'm not going to get into that because that's a rabbit trail that I went on for far too long myself. When we remember the laxity of the sanctity of marriage in Corinth at the time of this writing, we cannot ignore the fact that in that culture, Divorce was like getting a new car every year. I mean, there is, there's records and statements of historians and, and other writers in the area of talking about some guy who had 17 wives in 17 years. 
Another, this woman bragged about having 25 different husbands. And it was so easy to just simply cast off someone. And then in walks the church. In walks Paul. Then you also have in the Jewish culture, the uh, certain rabbis would say that um, marriage is permanent, and others would say, well, if she bakes the cake incorrectly, you can set her off. Set her off. Get rid of her. You have then the challenge of what we call mixed marriages. Now, within Jewish culture, a Jew would only marry a Jew, generally. But then you go into the Greek culture, the slave culture, and you get mixed religions and all sorts of other things going on. You have this stew that actually looks exactly like the same stew we live in today, if not worse. Because in today's culture, today's society, the sanctity and the um, institution of marriage is more of a, well, I suppose we need to get married, rather than a, um, a God-honoring institution. Because you have so many now that simply choose to live together instead of get married, which then changes the divorce uh, percentages because they were never married in the first place. So you can't even count the black that they broke up because the state never knew that they signed a certificate because they didn't. They didn't feel they had to. So we are in a very complicated position. The church has tried desperately to come from a position of grace and a position of forgiveness and a position of compassion in these situations. To add to all this, it does not help for whatever reason. God chose not to have passages in Scripture that deal with abuse within a marriage. There are none. Now, there have been attempts to take even some of the passages we look at today and shoehorn them into a abuse situation and say, well, that's where this applies. You kind of go, well, I suppose it could, but it doesn't say that. It's not direct. And I do believe that that's somewhat related to the context or the time, because back then the wife was considered property, and you could do with her whatever you wished, with no consequence by law or by police uh, reports or anything like that. It's just like, okay. You can do whatever you want to her. So there was nothing to say, don't do that. Because it just wasn't discussed. Or it may not have been as widely practiced as it is now. (coughs) So then you have the situation of the poor woman, usually the woman, in an abusive situation, where then the church says, well, you need to get out. But then what does she do? in relation to her marriage relationship. So, isn't this fun? Mm. Wow. Talking about extraordinary dysfunction and brokenness. If anybody says the Bible is not practical, they haven't read it. The fact that Paul is even trying to address these issues is extraordinary. He's putting it in a writing, and through God's inspiration, it becomes part of his word of God to us 2,000 years later. And then we have to say, well, what does that mean for us? Now, in your handout, you probably already noticed on the first page, that I have three spots that are highlighted in gray. They're actually yellow if you look at it on my screen, but I don't have a screen here. Um, another thing you look at in the, in the, um, on the handout, you'll notice that I jump from verse 16 to verse 25. And that was done on purpose. Because verses 17 to 24 
have nothing to do with marriage, uh, divorce, remarriage, or singleness. They're separate. They, they may have something in its context, but I thought it would be better for us to try to study all of the content in this chapter together and then come back next time with verses 17 to 24 and then maybe see how it connects. If you have opened your Bible, you're already looking at what we skipped um, because it is interesting. You can maybe see the connection, but it's not a direct correlation with the rest of the, uh, the paragraphs. So I had highlighted the, uh, these three passages simply to say, you know what? When we try to look at Scripture and try to look at the context into which that Scripture is written, what are some of the clues that you can talk about what is Paul addressing and why? And while most commentaries, sermons, whatever, focus on the marriage, divorce, and singleness, no one, well, they allude to it, but no one looks at these three highlighted passages as the underlying context into which Paul is writing. I mean, notice this. He says, and I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. And then you jump down. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. And then he says again, for the present form of this world is passing away. Wow. So is he, what's he trying to say here? So to make it even more interesting, and this is before I had highlighted the passages. So imagine I haven't highlighted the pa these passages yet. Turn to the second page. Look under the black line. And by the way, if you're listening to this on audio, if you go to the inneraltar.com actual website, this handout will be there for you to download so you can see what we're seeing right now. I took verses 26 through 35 and rearranged them in a uh, outline form as if Paul were writing in an outline. Then after I had done that, it dawned on me that the highlighted passages are set apart. Do you see it? I didn't know that when I first did it. It was after I had done the outline I looked at this and went, oh my goodness, what do we have here? What we have is if we just read the stuff that's um, uh, pulled out to the, to the far left margin, it reads this way. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I'd spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Reading it like that, bam, it pulls it into a pastoral uh, umbrella. He's talking that there is something happening right now in your circumstance, in your life, in the life of your church right now. And I want you to be aware, and I'm doing this for your benefit. But then you see those other paragraphs that are pulled off to the side deal with the specifics of marriage and the betrothed and the single. Isn't that fascinating? So what, what is this present distress? Nobody knows. We have no idea what Paul is talking about. We can speculate. There are speculations along the lines of, um, let me find my notes here. Uh, was there a, a disease or a plague of some sort ramp, rampaging through the city and the countryside? So there's people who are sick and weak and dying and there's, they're distressed. That's one theory. But that probably wouldn't generate a response related to marriage. 
because that's usually temporary. You have something that, you know, people are sick or whatever. Um, the other is that this is, an, this is founded in Paul's eschatology, his belief in his study of the end times. And he refers to the end times a lot in his work. He will talk about the, end, the day of the Lord is coming. And there are many who believe that the way Paul wrote it, he believed that Jesus would come back a second time in his lifetime. Uh, if you look at it in that context, so maybe that's what he's referring to is that, you know, the time is short, so let's, um, let's think about different things because making long-term decisions are not necessary because things will change. That's possible, except the Greek word for distress here is never used in association with eschatology in any of other Paul's writings. He talks about hardship, but never as it being a time of distress. So this is the only time that you have the word distress used in this quote-unquote context, if we're putting it as a context. The last, which is um, the most common theme, but I'm not quite sure this solves it either, is that there was a very severe famine in the area. Uh, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus uses the same word, distress, in describing starvation in some of his writings. And in 3rd Maccabees, the word is used uh, during the, um, the Greek invasion of, of Jerusalem as a time of distress when it's all going to fall apart. It's terrible. Everything is awful. So I haven't answered the question because I have no idea what Paul's talking about. Well, maybe a decision is going to be stressful. Should I stay single or should I get True, but that's... Uh, that wouldn't necessarily be a present distress. And so you have this, this challenge is, what is the context? We're not even sure what question Paul is answering. Because this whole section of scripture is Paul responding to their letter that they had sent, where they had asked questions. We can maybe figure it out by the context of what's going on, but we do not know the exact question. Now I say all that not to try to um, diffuse or to undermine what is being written. To say, well, it was only applicable in that instance, in that church, at that time when Paul wrote it. Because this is the word of God. This is the word of God that has come to us and has implications for us. If we try to say it's only related to the context and has no further meaning, we are underwriting, undermining all of Scripture, if that were the case. So we can't... It's just, I find it helpful to look at the context and look at the potential into which Paul's writing this as instructive and maybe helpful to our understanding, but not to limit its scope. Hopefully that makes sense. Of course, you know the commandment is uh, that us we should love our wives. Well, if I was married, well, if I love my wife, I'd be helpful to her, not be a All right. Well, let's look at the text. So let's go. Chapter 7, verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. And you have to go, well, why did he say that in the parentheses? Because he's trying to say that Jesus addressed this topic already. We find Jesus talking about the marriage, about marriage and divorce very clearly. I'll just read a couple words. And we know Jesus spoke them because they're in red in my Bible. Um, so Mark 10.9 Mark 10, verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then over in Luke 16, verse 18. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he, who, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Matthew 19, which is the most famous passage. We have verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, Haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, So why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's found in Deuteronomy. And he said to them, Because your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. And from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And there's more to that passage if you want to go look at it. So what struck me, however, is that Paul is referencing words of Jesus and we don't have the Gospels yet. This is before Matthew's written. This is before Luke has written. So how does he know this? Were there documents floating around? Were there, um, you know, was there a, a special secret scroll being passed around? We talk about it, that um, when you look at the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that there are commonalities that suggest there's an original source that all three were citing. They call that the Q document, because they don't know what else to call it, I guess. Um, but the Q document potentially was out and circulating, because he, you know, Paul is suggesting here that these people know this. They know that Jesus said this. And he's just confirming that Je these are not my words, these are Jesus' words. So I just had to stop there for a moment and go, well, that's interesting. If we look at our chronology, Paul isn't citing Matthew chapter 19. He can't. It doesn't exist yet. So... All I have to say is that in God's extraordinary sovereignty, the words of Jesus Christ spread throughout the region. Because remember, this is Corinth. This isn't next door to Jerusalem. This is quite a ways away. And we're almost 15, 15 or so years away from the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for it to have spread that far, granted you have Pentecost, which spread things. But I just found that absolutely fascinating to think about for a second. Wait, he's citing Jesus. And we go, oh yeah. And we flipped over, like I did, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke and read it to you. But he could not have done that. He's either citing oral tradition or written materials but just simply didn't put a footnote in his letter because, because of course we all write footnotes when we write letters um, <clears throat> anyway he says I give this charge the husband should not separate from her husband <clears throat> but if she does she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce the wife <clears throat> notice something very interesting in the language we have here. And it it's actually reflects the Greek. One of the few times, hooray, the English got it right. It says the wife should not separate from her husband. And at the end of verse 11, it says the husband should not, what? It's a different word. Are they different words? Well, yes, in the Greek, they are different words. In the Greek, the word separate is the word korizo, C-H-O-R-I-D-Z-O, korizo. 
And the word for divorce is the word is the word aphani, a p h i e n a i. Now, problem we have with English is the word separate has changed its meaning over the millennia. We now talk that if people are in dispute, that they should separate. Right? Should take a time away from each other. They should separate. That is not what this word means. <clears throat> that Greek word is actually used when we had earlier Jesus saying, "What God has put together, let no man separate." Or in the King James, "Put asunder." In other words, break or divorce. It is also the same word. I thought this was fascinating. The same word is found in Romans 8:39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The same word. And what Paul is writing here to the Romans is that there is nothing that can tear apart our relationship to God. Nothing can tear it apart. It's permanent. It's forever. So for Paul to be using the word separate here in verse 10 as distinct from the word divorce would be incorrect. It's the same implication. So if you want to substitute the word divorce, the beginning of the verse, the wife should not divorce from her husband, it means the same thing as him saying the husband should not divorce his wife. Don't read it differently. Just because they're two different English words or two different Greek words. <clears throat> you even have the word charizo is used in Acts 18:1 when Paul left Athens. He separated himself from Athens. He left the room. He broke away completely. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. The fact that Paul did use two different words, in spite of the fact that in context they essentially meant the same thing, right. is that do you think due to the fact that the woman didn't have the legal right to do the legal uh, divorce? That is a possibility. Okay. That is a possibility because the woman, there wasn't, there, divorce is always one-sided. You know, the man could divorce the wife, the wife right. could not because necessarily they, divorce the husband. Because what you said was the question. However, right? in secular society, they could. Yeah, well, because the, the fact you made a, a point that the two words are different, but you also made the point that they essentially mean pretty mean much the same, the same thing, thing. Right. but so it seems you're saying one thing or the other, but the difference is the wife didn't have the legal right to... to in Jewish law. Right, and of course... In Greek law, the wife had the right. Man, yeah. Means you have to remember his mixed mm -hmm. congregation. Yeah. So he's talking to Jews that are going, ah, 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 and the Greeks are going, yeah, what's the big deal? Because mm -hmm. it, it was really, odd. it's this odd thing. So I didn't want to make too big of a deal of it other than to say that people have misused the first part of this verse to talk about separation. Uh-huh. And, for and that isn't the meaning of the word. The meaning of the word is actually a divorce. And so there's, a, there's really not much room in the, the scripture for separation. It just isn't. In these modern times, you know, marriages can have expiration dates, kind of like signing the lease. I disagree years. with you. Uh, uh, I, marriage does not have an expiration date, yeah, no, other than other than death. Right. Okay. So, but you'll notice that throughout the rest of this passage, we have the word divorce in verse twelve, uh, the verse thirteen. You also have the word separate in verse fifteen. So you see how it's kind of using back and forth and back and forth throughout the passage. We can't make too much of it, but it is something to notice. Then he goes, verse 12, 
To the rest I say, and then he has this parenthetical phrase, I, not the Lord. Oh, great. So in other words, all he's trying to say is Jesus never addressed the issue of mixed marriages. And mixed marriage didn't mean racial. It meant believing and unbelieving. So make sure we don't see that. Because whenever I even wrote the word phrase on the side, mixed marriage, I went, wait, that's, that has different connotations in today's culture. When we say a mixed marriage, we're thinking racial. But they're actually saying, well, it's when a Baptist married a Presbyterian, and man, they do not get along. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but this is kind of what he's saying. You have the believer and the unbeliever in the confines of this fledgling church. Remember, just, just you, you cannot separate this, um, the context and the people that are in this room, that are in this group. You've got slaves in this group. You've got Romans in this group. You've got people who are wealthy, people who are not. You've got those that are brand new to the faith, but it's just one half of the marriage relationship. So we have to be, he, he's trying to address something that Jesus never had to, because Jesus was addressing Jews. And the Jewish population pretty much by Jewish law, Old Testament law, did not marry outside the faith. So it wasn't an issue. I was uh, reading something by uh, Dr. Albert Muller uh, this past week related to the issue of uh, women in marriage and the hierarchy issues and all of that. And it was very interesting because he was addressing the Southern Baptist Convention and he said the issue of whether or not women should be ordained is not an issue in the Southern Baptist Church because we don't ordain anybody. So let's move on. And it was like, oh, wow, he just solved the argument because oh, we, you know, women should be ordained. He goes, uh, no, we don't ordain anybody. So let's just let's go on to the next topic here. Let's just put it aside because it did not apply to the context that he was trying to address. So when Jesus was addressing the Pharisees in chapter 19, he was addressing the controversy of the, the Jewish, the, actually the Jewish thinking. You had the one saying you, you needed, that marriage was permanent and another rabbi was coming along saying, oh no, just if she makes you mad, get rid of her. That was Hillel, was his name. Um, you also have the problem of, well, let's just read the text and I'll address it a little bit here. Um, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Because there were people that were saying, remember, sexual relations between man and wife, husband and wife, is unholy. That's what we addressed last time we were together. The first nine verses, he was addressing this issue of sexual relations because there's were those who were saying that anything that's sexual related is actually sullies the relationship. And he was trying to say, no, that is not what scripture says. That is not what God intended. So you have this problem here of the wife is not a believer and the husband is and someone say well then you get rid of her and get one that likes that likes Jesus if any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her he, she should not divorce him well Tertullian who was alive in 155 to 220 AD so about a hundred years after this passage he wrote a book about the mixed marriage, the unbelieving and the believing uh, spouses. And in it, he described a heathen husband who was angry with his Christian wife because, quote, for the sake of visiting the brethren, she goes round from street to street to other men's cottages. 
especially those of the poor. He will not allow her to be absent all night long at nocturnal convocations and paschal solemnities, or suffer her to creep into prison to kiss a martyr's bonds or to exchange a kiss with one of the brethren. If you remember, they greeted each other with the holy kiss. He was offended by that. So it was a problem still, a hundred years later, in the church that Tertullian, who was from Carthage in North Africa, was dealing with. You would think Paul's words would have settled it, but it still was pervasive. So Paul writes something that has created no small measure of consternation for interpreters. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay. So, does that mean that if you marry someone who is an unbeliever, because of the strength of your faith, they will be saved in God's eyes? No. But isn't that what it says? And obviously, Joanna, you're making him holy. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you kind of look at that. When you, look, when you read it, and it's basic, it's confusing. Because we are looking at it in a different, from a different lens. What you have to remember is Paul is setting the idea of marriage right side up. It's a God-ordained, blessed relationship. And if you break that relationship, then God cannot bless it because it's broken. But if it remains, He can work within it. As I wrote here, uh, the sanctity of the relationship is paramount. God takes marriage very seriously. And even says that the kids, the family then, has that opportunity to be raised up in a context where the marriage is not broken, but the children receive the benefit from either spouse that happens to be a believer. Um, Ray Stedman wrote this. It's very interesting. Um, this is about 30 years ago. He's, he's he uh, preached this sermon. He said, there's a woman, a woman in our congregation here who I'm long, I've long admired because for years she has been married to a non-Christian. She has lived a godly life before her mate and her children. As a result of her own godliness, most of her children have come to the Lord where her husband still resists. It's very difficult for me to understand how he is able to resist through the years because of the witness that he has to face. Not pressuring, not embarrassing him in any way, but in a quiet, loving, proper witness. And this is what the apostle says. There is the possibility extended in a mate remaining in such a marriage that his or her unbelieving mate will come to Christ, and very likely the children as well. Therefore, they are set apart in a special relationship. Husband and children alike, like, or wife and children alike, and that is a marriage then that needs to be preserved. But, what if the unbeliever doesn't like that? What if he or she resents the fact that his or her mate will not go along with the same standards that he or she has? What if he or she is angry and upset all the time because of the newfound faith or the growing faith of his or her mate, and he or she decides not to stay in that marriage any longer? Well, the apostle says, let the unbeliever depart. It may cause heartache. These things are so close to us, they can hardly be carried out sometimes without much heartache. But let him depart, Paul says. And in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. And that particular verse generates the whole issue of remarriage. 
has the wife, has the spouse been abandoned? And is that a possibility for remarriage, which we will not get into today? Um, in fact, if you want to read something on the topic, read this little book. <laughs> this is Wayne Grudem's book, Christian Ethics. And there are 34 major topics, of which one is divorce and remarriage, and he has 50 pages on it. I read them. This is the one that Thomas... Yeah, Gary and I were working on that on Fridays. Not quite to that topic yet. Yeah, yeah you're, you're not quite to chapter page 800. No. <laughs> <laughs> but talk about struggling with the topics of the day. Whether you agree or disagree with Wayne Grudem's work here, it's a great starting point. I was talking about this book to a friend of mine this week, and I said it's like um, the book Kingdom of the Cults by Walter Martin. If you want an introduction to Jehovah's Witnesses or to Mormons or Christian Science or some of these other various uh, organizations, start with that book. Then expand your reach. But if the first book you read on Mormonism is this thick, you will never finish it because it's just too much. If you take something like this and you spend, you know, two or three hours reading the scriptural, uh, biblical understanding of something like birth control or homosexuality and transgenderism, he has an entire chapter on that. Property, property and wealth, business ethics, stewardship of the environment, he has it all here. It's a great place to start. But, oh my goodness. Now, where you have things, and I, I mentioned the fact that the church focuses on the issue of remarriage right here. A friend of mine has been out of work for nearly a year. And a young, man. young man. He has a young wife, two small children. And so you can imagine, I mean, no health insurance, you know, basically struggling to find part-time work here and there, nothing full-time. And he was offered a job from a major Christian ministry less than 20 minutes away from his home. Full-time, with benefits, full salary, and it was tailor-made for his abilities. And he turned the job down. And I was really startled because uh, he had asked me if I could fill out being one of his references when, um, when he was writing about it, and that organization contacted me. So I knew who it was, I knew what they were all about. And he said, the problem is, is that they have a policy to not hire divorced people because the Christian organization believes that those who are divorced should not participate in this ministry. This isn't a church. This is a parachurch organization. And I said, okay, why? He says, well, my parents divorced. My, I've got two siblings that are divorced. He says, I'm fine, but I just can't see, see going to work for an organization that would take a stance on something that I personally think is too rigid. Wow. Now, like I said, he's a friend, but he's not that good a friend because my question for him is said, well, if Apple had offered you the job, would you have taken it? Because they're a secular organization, and of course they support Planned Parenthood and all sorts of other horrific organizations and all that, but it's okay for, to work for them, but not for the Christian organization because of this doctrine. Isn't that interesting? This is why this is so difficult. This is why this is so hard to, to, to work through. Well, goodness, we're running out of time. We'll never get to it all. We're not getting into the deep weeds here. I'm just not going to go there. Because we're not setting church polity here. We are exploring what the text has to say. So we look at the next verse. 
Now concerning the betrothed, verse 25. The ESV is the only translation that uses the word betrothed. Every other translation uses the word virgins. It is the word parth- parthenos, which if you go to Matthew one twenty-three, and a parthenos shall be with child, talking of Mary, a virgin. It means young woman. It usually means a, young, a woman of marriageable age who is very young. And so the ESV actually is translating it correctly. So it doesn't just talk about single women in our culture, because that's how it's been interpreted. He was talking about the ones who have, been, have entered into a marriage contract. They are betrothed. Not that they're married yet, because if you remember the, the standard was, was it a year? Mm-hmm. I think it was a year. They would go into the contract, they would stay apart for the year, but they knew at some point the marriage would then become official. But during that time, you have this issue, he says, but in view of the present distress, it probably is better that you don't marry. Okay, wow, that's pretty dramatic. And he says, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek a wife. What I, and I, I meant to say this a few minutes ago, and I, I, I wanna circle back and then come back here again. Don't you find it interesting that Paul talks to both genders? equally, over and over and over again, in a culture into which they were not considered equal. Let's not forget that when reading Paul. So when he leaves one of them out, we don't make a big deal of it, but he doesn't talk about the woman who is betrothed and um, you know breaks it off, but The idea ultimately is that if you're single, you have a better opportunity to focus on things of God because there are no distractions. It's not to say your wife is a distraction or your husband is a distraction. You have to always balance this out. Elster Begg put it this way. He says if you're single, after you leave the church service today, you can go to Dunkin' Donuts. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, before you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you could probably sit around and talk to people for an hour or two, just languish before you go to the parking lot and go to Dunkin' Donuts. But if you're married and you've got four kids and you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you better buy a dozen. (laughs) You have got to have a dozen. And when you bring them home, you then have to referee who gets the glazed and who gets the sprinkles. And then you have to deal with the glare of your wife staring at you going, seriously, the sugar high we're gonna to have to deal with for the next two hours is your fault. You cannot go on the couch and watch the football game. And he goes, it's a different context. He says, is one right or wrong? One is different. It just simply shows you have other responsibilities that are real and legitimate. And you have to care, you love, and you, you are concerned for your spouse, for your children. The single person is unencumbered by that. And that's what he's trying to say to these people who are actually asking Paul, should I get married? I'm betrothed. Maybe they're betrothed to an unbeliever. And Paul's saying, well, Here's your options. And here is the positive element. See, what's happened in our culture, you know, they, you know, they talk about in uh, the scarlet letter, is the letter A for the adulterer that they would have to wear. Well, in our culture, it's the letter D for divorcee or S for single. And those who wear them around the church is like, oh, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with her? It's not a what's wrong. That's so unfortunate. I have no other word for that. It's just not right. I mean, I was looking at this um, Margaret 
What's your name? Margaret Clarkson was a well-known single woman uh, speaker a few years back. She wrote this, To know God, to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He is sovereign and that my life is in His care, this is the unshakable foundation on which I stay my soul. Such knowledge has deep significance for me, the single Christian woman. And then you bring up ladies like Henrietta Mears, who her ministry, just few people know her or of her or the implications she had. But uh, I was once working on a, uh, I'm getting a biography done about her. And I had reached out to a number of key ministry people saying, would you be willing to write, you know, 500 words on your memories of Henrietta Mears? And there were people like Billy Graham, Bill Bright, H. Norman Wright, Jim Dobson. These were all people that had been heavily influenced by this woman's ministry. Nobody knows who she is anymore. She started the Lake Hume Christian Camp because it was too far to drive to go to Mount Hermon in Northern California. She's an amazing woman. You have another, it's the sister of Chuck Swindoll, Lucy Swindoll. She's been this powerful voice in Christian circles as a single woman her entire life, never married. So you want to go, is that bad? No. Goodness sake, it's not bad. We, we would be, it would be inappropriate to even go there. Well, the text continues, obviously, for many, many verses. Um, you can read them yourself. They're very clear. Uh, there's really no interpretation of the rest of this chapter. You can't misinterpret what he's saying because he's being very specific. You know, the unwoman, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the, of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I want you to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And that is the ultimate point of this entire passage. Paul is saying, you guys, you're getting into details that while we need to have some rules, some judgment, our point is to learn to live for Christ in everything we do. And that is a setup for us coming back to the passage I skipped when we look at next week. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. Thank you for sanctifying our words and our thoughts as we address this topic. It's a hot-button issue for many people. It's not an easy one. And it's one that is full of sorrow. It's a one that's full of difficulty. And it's one that is expressed throughout our society in various forms of dysfunction, even into our own homes and our own families in our own family church. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us at least some direction, that you've given us some words of, uh, of hope, of a godly approach to the topics, so that we just don't go off willy-nilly and create our own rules that, that are capricious and can be changed depending on the swing of culture. Lord, thank you for the Word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.